Good afternoon. It's Friday the 14th of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Patrick Henningsen, Debbie Evans and Vanessa Bailey. Uh, welcome all. We've got a lot to cover, so we'll get straight on with it. Uh, worse than Theresa May, Liz Truss faces revolt in meeting with backbench Tories, is how the I was reporting it yesterday. Uh, this was a worse 1922 meeting than uh, 1922 committee meeting than under Theresa May. Brutal is what one MP told them. Uh, Liz Truss, obviously, the pantomime continues, uh, and uh, it continued this morning uh, with the sacking of uh, Quasi Quartang as uh, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. So uh, this was Stephen Swinford from the Times uh, pushing this out as an exclusive and told that Quasi Quartang will be sacked as Chancellor as Liz Truss prepares to reverse the mini-budget. And in fact, that happened about 15 or 20 minutes ago. Uh, so the question is, what was the cause? Well, of course, it was the so-called mini-budget uh, and the effects that it was having on the markets and the uh, apparent uh, pantomime of the argument between uh, the British government and the Bank of England, um, as uh, we were talking about, as David and Alex were talking about on Wednesday. Uh, but uh, the Bank of England, of course, had announced as, as they mentioned on Wednesday, that they were widening their gilt purchase operations to include index-linked gilts. Uh, and in fact, the Bank of England uh, is going to end this uh, uh, quantitative, further quantitative easing today, apparently. So they bought uh, around £4.35 billion of bonds on Wednesday, about £4.7 billion of bonds yesterday. Uh, so that's just shy of £20 billion in total, uh, including those two days. Uh, but that's going to end today. Now, it's just as well that Quasi uh, was going because, uh, well, in fact, this was just sort of breaking. Uh, Private Eye a, a magazine apparently had uh, highlighted, or uh, at least they were claiming, that uh, Quasi Quartang has been working for Odie's hedge fund uh, on the side uh, as a paid political advisor at £20,000 a month since he was elected as an MP in 2010. Now, it's not clear uh, whether he was still receiving that money as Chancellor of the Exchequer. But if he hadn't been sacked today, I think perhaps this might have uh, uh, had the opportunity to get some traction and, and some questions to be asked there. But the question is, uh, she has sacked Quasi Quartang. Will that be enough for people? Or will this trust end up having to go herself? In fact, should the government fall? Should there be a general election? Many people asking this question. But let's just remember uh, what the alternative is, uh, and that's Sir Keir Starmer. Now, this article here in the grey zone, uh, five questions for Keir Starmer. Let's just run through them. Why did you meet with MI5 chief for social drinks uh, the year after you decided not to prosecute MI5 for its role in torture uh, as Britain's director of pub, uh, public prosecutions from November 20, 2008 to October 2013? Uh, you had the ultimate decision on which criminal cases should be prosecuted the CPS intended to be is intended to be independent of the police and government, including the security services. Uh, then uh, he's asked, when did you join the Trilateral Commission? Uh, he's also asked, when did you discuss with the US Attorney General Eric Holder when you met him on, sorry, what did you discuss with the uh, US Attorney General Eric Holder when you met with him on 9th of November 2011 in Washington, D.C.? What role did you play in the CPS's regular hand, irregular handling of the Julian Assange case? And why did you develop such a close relationship with the Times newspaper while you were there, the director of public prosecutions? And does that close relationship still exist? These are uh, absolutely valid questions. Uh, and uh, uh, Patrick, if I just bring you on, first of all, uh, they are valid questions. Uh, the question is, will this government fall? 
And will we end up with that as the replacement? Yeah, yeah, that's th th those are all really good questions. Uh, Keir Starmer is the it's been the consummate uh, establishment inside man uh, for a very long time. Uh, so, you know, is going to be any big differences in policies? Uh, right now, the biggest crisis is clearly the uh, energy markets and prices and so forth, people being gouged, uh, being forced into fuel poverty. Um, and we'll talk about that uh, later on in, in a few minutes. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, let's uh, come on to defence and war and so on. And yesterday, uh, NATO was holding its defence ministers meeting in Brussels uh, and Ben Wallace was there. Uh, and so uh, what was he talking about? Well, before the meeting took place, uh, he announced that the UK is going to be donating cutting edge air defence missiles to Ukraine, uh, which can help protect against Russia's missile strikes. Uh, let's have a look and see what he said. Uh, he said, uh, Russia's latest indiscriminate strikes in civilian areas in Ukraine warrant further support to those seeking to defend their nation. So today I've authorized the supply of AMRAAM anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine. Uh, these weapons will help Ukraine defend its skies from attacks and strengthening their overall missile defense alongside the US uh, NASAMs. So uh, that's what he had to say. The meeting uh, itself took place. And Jens Stoltenberg uh, made some comments. We'll just listen to a few seconds uh, of his opening remarks, and then we'll have a, a quick discussion about that. In this working session, we will address NATO's uh, defense and deterrence and the implications of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine for allied security. We will discuss uh, measures to ramp up our production and strengthen our industrial base so that Ukraine has what it needs to prevail as a sovereign and independent nation, and that we have what we need to defend our nations. So we've been listening to the rhetoric over the last number of years, uh, including over the last two years of COVID restrictions about uh, deindustrialization and so on. Suddenly we're going to reindustrialize because uh, the, the uh, narrative uh, supports that, but probably only in very limited area. Because what he's talking about, Patrick, is not general reindustrialization; it's uh, military uh, industrialization. Yeah, it, and good luck running all your uh, arms factories on solar and wind energy. Uh, so there's a kind of a clash uh, going on uh, between uh, re the real economy, uh, the real industry, and the sort of green vision, uh, the uh, Baerbock uh, vision uh, for Germany, for instance, of what the future looks like. So. But, but we'll talk also in a few minutes about this this new fetish that, and this is the talking point that's pretty much uh, streamlined in Washington, which is that if we just give the Ukrainians the right technology, they'll be able to repel the Russians. And so that's pretty much right across all media outlets, all politicians are all on message, uh, right across, probably across the G7, but but the US and Britain and it's it's a way of kind of externalizing uh, the conflict and kind of automating the conflict going forward. NATO just launched a ten-year plan this week. Uh, they announced this, they've got the ten-year plan of how to prop up Ukraine, basically, in this long war against Russia. So they're digging in for this what looks like a frozen conflict. Think North South Korea. Uh, this is might be a, a look into the future of how this is going to shape up long term. And so the defense contractors will be looked after on this. But I, I, I really don't think this has been fully thought out. 
I think a lot of this is uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, indeed. Uh, well, uh, obviously, with the announcement earlier in the week uh, of this, uh, of PESCO, or at least the UK, uh, effectively joining PESCO, if we just put uh, Gerald Harth on screen here, uh, this many people saying that Liz Truss committed treason whenever she brought uh, uh, the UK into PESCO. Uh, the, the vote went through at that uh, European meeting last week. Uh, well, there was more European developments uh, at the Defence Minister's meeting yesterday, and it was uh, it was this. So here is the family photograph, as they say, as they call it, of the de defence ministers from 14 NATO allies. These are all European NATO allies, plus Finland, who have signed a letter of intent for the de development of a European Sky Shield initiative, as they're calling it. Um, this is uh, going to be led by Germany. Uh, it aims to create a European air and defence missile system, uh, air and missile defence system. Uh, through the common acquisition of air defence equipment and missiles by European nations. Um, so that's fantastic. 14 European nations involved, Belgium, Belgium Bulgaria, uh, and so on. Uh, we'll, list, we'll list them all under the uh, show notes later on. Um, and, uh, well, Vanessa, question for you. Uh, do you think that uh, they will succeed in building a Europe-wide missile defence system? Uh, and how effective do you think the uh, missiles that we're sending off to Ukraine are likely to be? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, bluff and bluster going on uh, among the NATO member states. I mean, we've already seen the uh, ineffectiveness of, of, for example, the American um, Patriot system um, in uh, Armco in Saudi Arabia and in UAE when trying to repel um, basic Yemeni uh, drone warfare. So I think, um, you, you know, there's a lot of big talk going on at the moment. Quite how easily this will be put into practice, I, I would be extremely suspicious um, of the ease with which that might be introduced and how effective it might be. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and Patrick, uh, according to Politico, uh, no sign Putin is planning to use nukes against Biden uh, after Biden's Armageddon comment. Uh, not just Politico, um, according to Jake Sullivan, <laughs> of all people, he's quoted in here uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, the, the threats are serious, etc., but they don't have any indication that Putin's planning to use nuclear weapons um, in Ukraine. So this is after like weeks and weeks of blathering uh, by pretty much every mainstream pundit, media outlet, security expert. Um, they've all been saying it's a fait accompli. Putin will use tactical nukes if he's backed into a corner and, and he'll lash out. And, uh, you know, they're trying to get into the head of Vladimir Putin, this sort of exercise that's done in the media. And the politicians are all kind of parroting this thing as well. Um, so here now, for some reason, maybe it's because the midterm elections are coming up. Biden's national security advisor basically saying, no, uh, there's no danger of Putin, you know, getting upset and letting off a nuke. I mean, it's kind of the whole thing is ridiculous. But what there's two there's two options uh, as to where this is heading. One of them is that they, they'll use the Saddam Hussein WMD threat to preemptively do some major uh, a measure or action in order to preempt the uh, inevitability of Putin using a nuke in Ukraine. That's one option, possibly in the future. The other is that this would set up the narrative for a false flag, 
a dirty bomb, a nuclear incident, whatever, even at the power plant in Zaporizhia, even something like that would be spun into this as a Russian threat. And we need to act now. We need to join up as NATO and act now to to rebuff uh, this evil madman, basically. So for some reason, uh, Biden's national security advisor is kind of stepping back on this, maybe for the moment. I'm not sure. But I thought this is interesting because it goes against everything that's being repeated ad nauseum across media and government for the last couple of months. Yes, but in the meantime, Macron uh, has said that uh, he would not be bombing uh, or using any kind of response if Russia launched a nuclear attack. That's right. That's right. And Macron got absolutely hammered for for saying this. He basically saying he's saying pretty much, I'll, I'll paraphrase him, this would not be in the national interest or a threat to French security directly. Therefore, uh, he doesn't see why France would respond in the event of such a scenario. Uh, and he absolutely got roundedly attacked by a number of different quarters uh, for saying this. So here's Macron saying something slightly reasonable here, uh, and he's getting attacked for it. So that shows you where a lot of the press is, where the warmongers are uh, amongst the NATO uh, tribe, uh, that they will go after somebody for saying that they won't uh, retaliate uh, if a nuclear weapon, they won't escalate into uh, a major conflict um, should this happen. So this is interesting. Okay, so, so what is Ukraine's path to victory then? Ukraine's path to victory uh, is, well, th this is the talking point that, uh, th that somehow if we just get them the right tech, if, and this is the CFR's mouthpiece, Foreign Affairs, if we just get them the right technology, um, then somehow this is going to basically save the day for the Ukraine. Uh, and so, again, this feeds back into the whole uh, military industry, the, the sort of defense gravy train. Um, that Ukraine has become and a, bl a black hole for funding and uh, recycling arms and so forth and getting back brand new backfill technology and kit for NATO member states. So, but it, this, this is kind of the uh, delusional uh, place where the media has found itself now. Um, and so there, this is a, it's almost like a satirical piece here, the way that they're talking up Ukraine. And again, you got to look at all this stuff through the lens of the U.S. midterm elections coming up. So everybody is basically pointing in the one direction, which is that Ukraine's winning, we're winning the West, and we're, we're beating Putin, and everything's positive going into the U.S. midterm elections. What, what the reality will look like, and the penny will drop, people will sober up after uh, November 3rd, um, I think. And then we might get back to a real conversation, but it's going to be more of this uh, running up to November. Yeah, and that takes us on then to the Ukrainian map. Sure. So when, when you're talking about <laughs> uh, who's winning, um, th th this is the reality. This is a couple of months old, but it re generally represents where things are at. So, you know, if this is winning for Ukraine, uh, well, then we can go on to the what uh, what's known as the Medvedev map. This was, was tweeted out by Dmitry Medvedev uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and this is the Medvedev map, that, that's where it could end up. So, and the talk is, which is interesting, uh, that in, basically they're a de facto member of NATO now. And I think you could probably make that argument that uh, they are a de facto member of NATO. They're an extension by proxy 
of NATO, but what, but what, uh, what's left? What's left of Ukraine? What will Ukraine be um, if this current trajectory of the conflict continues? We'll get back to the normal conversation after November 3rd. Yes. Okay. So, so that's uh, the Medvedev map. And then uh, finally, uh, this RT article here um, is uh, again talking about Zelensky's demands for more anti-aircraft defenses uh, from the West. Yeah. And, and this is back to your previous conversation and PESCO, the arms industry, uh, Jan Stoltenberg. This, this is just more of the same. So they've got these basic uh, product requests procurement orders that are being drifted out um, in the media via governments. And so behind all of this, this, this is the latest this week, the latest gadget, the latest piece of revolutionary technology that will help Zelensky turn the tide against the Russians. That Next week, it'll be something else. Oh, they need this particular tank. You remember when this all started? Let's just get them javelins. If we can just get, get them enough javelin missiles and NLAW missiles. Uh, they're going to defeat these Russians. And so this would be the game changer. So every every week, it seems, or every couple of weeks, there's a new revolution in military affairs uh, from the NATO camp. And what is this? This is marketing for product. That's all it is. This has become a big exercise in propaganda and defense product marketing. That's yes. what Ukraine has become. So this is an, an, a perfect example of it. Um, okay, Vanessa, you got some thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to say, first of all, it's interesting to see uh, the dissent that's coming through amongst the oligarchy against uh, the potential for nuclear escalation. We saw Elon Musk, who, you know, I don't trust at all, but who was putting out statements that uh, seriously um, irritated the the Kiev uh, regime leadership, um, calling for peace, for negotiation, for diplomacy. You've got Macron now, who I believe has always had back-channel relations with Russia that he's not going to relinquish, who's now pushing back against the, the whole idea of taking it to uh, an, a nuclear preemptive strike, which, of course, is what America or Washington has been pushing for. And you've now even got dissent within um, Washington itself against any nuclear escalation. So I think what you're seeing now is the red line that some of uh, the ruling predator class are not going to cross. And I think now you're going to see some degree of um, schism um, between uh, the ruling elite over Ukraine. It's interesting, and I think it will be interesting to see where, where the dice land up, as Patrick said, leading up to November and, and after. Okay, thank you for that. Well, we'll be coming back to this topic a little bit later in the program, but first of all, let's move on to health issues. And uh, I just wanted to highlight this article from The Daily Skeptic. Uh, the spike in heart attacks has coincided with vaccinations and emergency department doctor on what's behind the NHS crisis. So let's have a look at what he's talking about. So he's highlighting the various aspects of the NHS crisis. First of all, uh, ambulance staffing. Uh, he's talking about the chaos in hospitals. He's talking about the PCR regime and the fact that wards had been closed for social distancing and so on. Uh, he's talking about community chaos. For those that haven't noticed, uh, he said, for many, general practice uh, now consists of a telephone triage service and a vaccination service. For lots of people, uh, their only source of health care is the emergency department and so on. So this is all contributing. Uh, but I thought this was the key paragraph here. However, it has been many years since I've seen that this number of patients with heart attacks and strokes the timing of the uptick has coincided with the vaccination programs. 
correlation is not causation, of course. Uh, yesterday, I saw a superbly fit young man with no cardiovascular risk factors who had two previous uh, vaccinations despite healthy kidneys. He had a cardiac cell death test result through the roof uh, after having chest pain while exercising. I worry that the spike protein or other factors have caused damage to the blood vessel lining cells uh, such that uh, exercise is precipitating spasm or rupture of plaques in coronary arteries leading to heart attacks. Uh, there are too many professional and amateur athletes now getting acute myocardial uh, damage post-inoculation uh, for it to be a complete coincidence. Uh, and it seems to be an effect, unfortunately, that can persist for many months after the injection. Uh, we're allowed to talk openly about the consequences of lockdown and health, but not about potential consequences uh, of the vaccines. So, Debbie, uh, I'll welcome you to the program at this point. I thought that was a really uh, interesting uh, report, uh, article in the Daily Skeptic. It's a shame, though, uh, that doctors still feel the need to uh, make these kinds of reports anonymously. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, the, the, the one great thing that I can say is in the last few days, I've had the privilege of speaking to a very highly qualified nurse who's a cardiac specialist nurse. And um, she's been saying she's come out and said exactly the same as this. You know, in in her day, if you saw somebody aged 47, in fact, she did, I think, say that she'd she'd seen one patient aged 47 and it was remarked upon take notice of this patient because this is very rare you will very very rarely see young people with cardiac conditions and yet here we are with thousands and no one's asking questions well we are and um, the interview with this very very brave nurse will be out soon so watch this space for some more Okay, well, let's move on. You've mentioned uh, before the uh, issue of the patient safety commissioner and the uncontactability of the patient safety commissioner, but there have been developments. There have indeed. And, you know, I have to thank Spike very much. Um, and for some reason, um, an email must have missed my attention, but I, I caught this on our community forums where uh, Spike is drawing my attention to uh, Dr. Henrietta Hughes. Now, we can't find Dr. Henrietta Hughes, and for people that might have forgotten, her appointment was as a result of the MHRA's Do No Harm uh, report, which was written by Baroness Cumberledge, the very same Baroness Cumberledge that happened to mention that yellow cards were going in the bin, as you may remember. So we've actually tracked Dr. Henrietta Hughes down. So I would urge everyone to screenshot this and I need some help from all our viewers and listeners. I need everybody, if they would like to speak to Dr. Henrietta Hughes, because she is the Patient Safety Commissioner. They can telephone the Department of Health and Social Security on that number, 0207 210 4850. If you hit option four, you can make an NHS complaint. If you hit option six, you can leave, mes leave a message for a specific member of staff so you can actually leave a message for Dr Henrietta Hughes. If you don't want to ring her email address is just there at the bottom of the screen and so you can contact her at commissioner at patientsafetycommissioner.org.uk. So this is fantastic so we can now all contact um, Dr Henrietta Hughes. But I just wanted to go back and, and look in a bit more because Spike had drawn my attention to her. You know what it's like when somebody's on my radar. So I found her um, appointment hearing. I thought those two words were a bit strange to go together, but however, they do. 
And in her appointment hearing, she says the motivation for her to apply for the job was to make patients and service users' lives better. And that she found the MHRA do no harm report both harrowing and traumatic. So we know that she's read the report. We know that she's aware that yellow cards have been going in the bin. What's even more worrying in that uh, in that report or in that hearing was that they said they didn't they weren't quite sure whether they, this was going to work, whether maybe she was going to get overwhelmed with people. But maybe we need to investigate that. But hey, don't worry about it. Let's go ahead any, anyway and let's appoint her. And that's exactly what they did. They appointed her. So great candidates, huge amounts of empathy, but where's she come from? So while I was digging around, I found her CV. And I found her CV very interesting because she's in an awful lot of posts at the moment, you know, currently. She's not just patient safety commissioner. As you can see there where I've underlined in, in red, you can see that she's part of huge amounts of organizations. And the cabinet office, leadership, liveryman, society of apothecaries, the NHS leadership academy, top leaders. I mean, where she come from? The North London leadership aspiring leaders. Who knew that the NHS leadership courses ever existed? And so I went and had a little bit of a deep dive because, you know, this kind of young global leaders and and common purpose, grooming people to, to, to reach senior posts. So I thought I'd go and have a look and bingo, who knew that this existed? And um, we've got the NHS Leadership um, Academy and also an executive suite. So we, we can see that, um, you know, this exists. So I'm deep diving a little bit more into this, but she's also been very busy with um, South Central Ambulance. And when I went to South Central Ambulance to have a look at her appointments, I could see, as Spike had quite, um, quite rightly highlighted, she's also the company director of Accelerate Improvement Limited. So I thought, well, well, that's interesting. What's Accelerate Improvement Limited? Well, this is a company that's a private limited company. She runs it with her husband. Um, it's currently running. And it says nature of the business 86900 other human health activities. So I thought, well, this is strange. What does that mean? So I went to have a look and I could see that this is just a whole, I mean, there's so many things that are covered under this particular code, but interestingly, ambulances are, are covered in there. So whether or not this company is ambulances. I'm not quite sure. Could it be something else? So I actually don't know any more about this company. So if anybody does know about it, or if anybody can shed a bit more light on Dr. Henrietta Hughes and what she's been up to in the past, we would be really grateful to find out. And, um, you know, whilst I was doing that, you know, the NHS stories are running so quickly. I mean, every single day, something else is collapsing. And now we've got uh, the NHS blood and transplant service in, in utter chaos. And they've issued an amber alert because they haven't got enough blood. Uh, but actually, it's not actually so much about the blood. It seems to be about the staff because they don't have any staff to take the blood. Apparently, we only have two days 
um, supply left. But, you know, I, I get a lot of emails from people asking me what my stance on blood is. And quite clearly, after the hepatitis blood infection scandal, we are not screening blood still for spike proteins or anything with regards to the COVID vaccination. And when I went to look further, I could see that actually doctors are saying that people are refusing to have blood transfusions because they're very concerned that the blood hasn't been screened and that parents indeed are requesting unvaccinated blood. This doesn't surprise me one bit. Um, on a personal level, uh, one of my own family was in need or was going to be in need of a blood transfusion and opted not to have one. I've already phoned the NHS blood transfusion service and I got confirmation that indeed they're not screening. So we actually don't know what we would be receiving if we were to need blood. Um, but, you know, the NHS is in complete collapse um, and we've been saying it for a very long time. But now the BMA have actually brought out a report saying that the, the NHS is in complete collapse. And this is all down uh, due mainly to an exodus of consultants, which is all to do with the pension scheme. So we've got 40,000 nurses have left. We've had um, exodus of consultants, exodus of doctors. We can't retain staff. We've got underqualified staff. Um, and it, it really is, we've been saying it for a long time, you don't know who you're seeing in the NHS, you don't know where they've come from. And this, this is being reported everywhere. And you can see there on the right, that's the BMA paper. So clearly, uh, we need the rest of the world to know that our health service is no longer a service, it's gone, it's dead. Because, you know, if we look at some of the stats, I can tell you that um, I wrote a couple of them down um, because they've been reported on on the mainstream media that one in eight currently are on a waiting list in England. Um, at the end of August, there were seven million waiting to start treatment. Now, that's just to start treatment. Um, and to compare that in July, we had 6.8 million. So that's a rapid rise. We haven't seen that kind of rise since 2007. Stephen Powis said at a board meeting in July that he was worried about a twindemic. So this is even before this flu and in inverted commas COVID twindemic hits the NHS. You know, we're fast approaching winter and we have done proudly a quarter of a million early cancer tests. Why are we testing healthy people when we have 7 million people waiting to start treatment. So if we're testing people for cancer, we're telling them, well, sorry, you've got cancer, but now you're just gonna go to the end of a, a 7 million waiting list in order to be treated, because in some areas that's, that's happening. The ambulance services in collapse, you know, we've still got delays. We've still got bed blocking going on, no social care. I mean, I don't know what the thoughts of anyone else um, is, at the moment but the nhs is in complete and utter collapse and just to add one quick thing the mhra by the way have updated their stats now for the by uh, since the run out of the bivalence and i know that mike you're very busy updating the uh, yellow card site on the column front page yeah uh, well indeed and i mean we, we just need to make the point that of course the mhr does not make it easy 
to to do that because the this form that the data comes in is is uh, tricky to to process and in fact they change the format of it from from release to release so it takes us a little bit of time uh, to get that from from when they publish it to get it onto the uh, UK column uh, the yellowcard.ukcolumn.org website uh, this is uh, just the nature of the beast unfortunately sorry just one final comment uh, Debbie? Yeah, and, and I would like to say very quickly, um, these are my very quick observations. Since uh, the bivalence been rolled out, we seem to have got fatalities have gone up from Pfizer by six, only six reported, Moderna up 12, and AstraZeneca, even though we're not giving it at the moment, we've had an increase of 13. We don't know how many deaths have occurred from the previous yellow cards that have been in inverted commas binned. And we've got to say that this has been a low uptake of the bivalent and it's only been rolled out to certain, um, uh, certain areas of the population, the over 70s. And now I think it's being offered to the over 55s, but there's a very low take up, but keep an eye on those MHRA data numbers. Yeah, brilliant, thank you very much. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up from the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share any of the material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, now, let's get back to uh, Jens Stoltenberg and uh, a further little clip from his uh, opening of the uh, Defence Minister's meeting yesterday. We stand united as allies and in solidarity with Ukraine. Let me welcome the strong message from the UN General Assembly, clearly condemning Russia's illegal annexation of Ukrainian territories and calling for the reversal of these illegal acts. The overwhelming majority in the UN demonstrates that Russia is isolated. So here is the uh, UN news uh, release for this. And uh, part of that, they, or when they tweeted it out, they uh, showed the results. Um, and so uh, a few countries there voting against this resolution, uh, Belarus, uh, Syria, of course, being on the list, uh, North Korea, Nicaragua, uh, a number of uh, abstentions, including China and India, uh, and quite a number of African countries. Uh, James Cleverly then uh, had this to say, uh, today's UN General Assembly vote is a powerful demonstration of the international community's widespread condemnation of Russia's outrageous illegal attempts to annex the Ukrainian regions of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia. Uh, uh, he said this is an important show of international unity against the aggressors, uh, sorry, against an aggressor that seeks to destabilize the international norms that protect us all uh, in the face of President Putin's unprovoked aggression. 143 nations across the globe have come together in defense of the UN Charter and in solidarity with Ukraine. So, uh, Vanessa, many, many uh, opportunities there to uh, repeat the same old tropes. Uh, but, uh, of course, with China and India being on the list of abstentions, uh, there may be 143 nations, uh, but that doesn't mean a majority of populations if you add that all up together. No, absolutely. And, and this is the way that they've been trying to sell it from the beginning. Um, it, you know, effectively, or this is where the, the, the Western exceptionalism comes into play. They are the international community. They are the community that counts. And the communities that have been persecuted by the West for, for centuries don't count. 
and and that I think is is actually going to be largely um, in, an element of the West's uh, downfall in the end to discount those countries that they have considered um, irrelevant to their agenda. Yes. Now let's move on to uh, some uh, stuff from you. So we've got an update here on the Uyghur situation and the United Nations. Mm. Uh, well, the headline here, huge setback for West as UN rights body rejects plea to discuss China's abuse of Uyghurs. Yeah, I mean, this is just a very quick follow-up to the reports that we did on um, the UN Human Rights Commissioner, um, Michelle Bachelet's trip to Xinjiang province and to China itself and how her efforts to um, create diplomatic bridges between the West and China were effectively scuppered um, by members of her own team and, of course, uh, the, the regimes in the West that, that are intent on criminalizing China. Um, and in the end, we know or we reported on the fact that the final UN uh, HRC uh, report that was published um, certainly didn't reflect the, the views of Michelle Bachelet. Now, of course, uh, in fact, the, the UN has um, said that it's basically not going to, or, or it's had vetoed um, the agenda to discuss China's alleged abuse of the Uyghurs. And what is interesting, and this will um, lead into the report that I'm going to do on China and Yemen immediately after this, but in the meantime, 19 nations, including Cuba, Pakistan, Nepal, Indonesia, Qatar, and the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. Now, a number of those countries, if people remember, we reported on, um, actually pushed back against uh, the publication of uh, the corrupted report on alleged abuses of Uyghurs uh, by China. Um, <clears throat> and according to um, WHJ, it appears that these nations are afraid of upsetting China or feel responsible for supporting Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. Well, I mean, I would argue against that. I would argue that some of these nations um, genuinely feel that the report was corrupted and, and that it shouldn't be published because it would um, further create a schism between the West and China. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, extraordinary, really, that the West is protecting the rights of um, Muslims in Xinjiang province having bombed the majority of Muslim countries the world over for the last few decades. Um, again, you know, the level of hypocrisy here is quite extraordinary. But an, an, an interesting development that effectively um, the uh, discussion or the panel um, that, that the Western regimes were calling for to dis discuss China's alleged abuse of Uyghurs um, has been effectively vetoed. Yes, well, let's move on then to Yemen. And uh, we've got this from Sana. Uh, China prioritizes Gulf economic oil relations. Yemen can wait. Yeah, I mean, the reason that I want to raise this, and I know we've sort of delayed talking about it for a few um, weeks now, is that um, I find it very difficult to have a discussion over Yemen's role in China with what I call the China files who um, are very reluctant to discuss any faults in, in China's foreign policy. And I think, for me, the Chinese involvement in Yemen, whether, it, whether of course it's governmental or whether it's independent Chinese agencies that are doing 
um, the the looting of oil through uh, Saudi and UAE of uh, Yemeni uh, resources. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, China is um, impacting in a very negative way on Yemen, which is already under tremendous pressure since 2015, one of the most um, horrifying humanitarian disasters that has been um, implemented by the West, by the Saudi coalition, by Israel, the UAE, and of course, enabled and facilitated by the UN and its associated agencies itself through UN Resolution 2216 that was established in 2015. Um, when, by the way, and I have to keep repeating this, Jamal Ben Omar, the UN peace envoy to Yemen, actually said that there was no need for the Saudi aggression because Yemenis themselves had reached political resolution inside Yemen. But of course, the illegitimate president, the, the twice resigned President Mansour Hadi, fled Yemen, went to uh, Riyadh, and then demanded that Saudi Arabia bomb his own country to reinstate him. Um, this uh, paper was written by a young Yemeni student who's actually um, based in China. So I just want to take out some main points from it. So it, it, if people want to read the entire excerpt, of course, they can freeze the screen. But let's say here, uh, Beijing's diplomacy has been reserved and has been reserved in line with its attitude of non-interference. Now, I want to focus in on that non-interference because I would actually disagree strongly with, with the concept that China is not interfering in Yemen um, and is carefully balanced to avoid alienating its old ally, Iran, or its newer partners in the GCC. Um, and then moving on, it does actually say that China met with uh, the National Salvation Government representatives the government that was formed in 2016 that uh, represents 38 of the um, Yemeni um, political and tribal um, parties and communities. So it is effectively a, a, a coalition government that was formed under Yemeni constitutional laws but has not been internationally recognized. Um, but then let's come down a bit to where I've underlined. Um, <clears throat> the move, however, appeared more of a nod to Iran than a realistic possibility. So in other words, the idea of, of brokering peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran, because it came a week ahead of King Salman's visit to Beijing with its lucrative business deals, including the Chinese drone factory and the joint statement of supporting Hadi's government in Yemen all prepared. So here it also becomes clear, although this is a very objective um, paper and is probably echoing some of the mainstream points regarding China's relationship um, with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And of course, the UAE is very much allied with Israel um, and the US in Yemen. The UAE established uh, torture centers in the south of Yemen where it has carried out um, horrifying Abu Ghraib-style um, torture techniques on many uh, civilians um, and members of the Yemeni national forces. Um, <clears throat> so it goes on to say that China receives 1.8 million barrels a day of Saudi crude oil. So it's talking about the relationship um, between Saudi Arabia and China. And Beijing's ambassador to the kingdom, Shen Weiqing, was clear in his condemnation of the attacks against Aramco, which were carried out 
um, by the Yemeni drones in an attempt to to push back against the Saudi genocidal aggression against um, the Yemeni people that's been ongoing since 2015. Uh, that includes, of course, the use of uh, U.S. manufactured cluster bombs against civilian targets, particularly in the Northern Territory of Sada. Um, now, so the ambassador to the kingdom was clear in his condemnation of the attack, saying Saudi Arabia has the right to defend itself. Now, where does that sound very familiar? That sounds very much like the Israeli um, claims that it's defending itself when, for example, it violates um, Syrian airspace and bombs civilian and military targets inside uh, Syria itself. And then finally, and I think this last paragraph in the paper written by Hisham Al-Khawlani, who I said is a Yemeni writer and researcher based in China. So um, one can assume there is going to be a degree of sympathy towards China in his writing. In a post-war Yemen, the BRI could be a catalyst for increasing bilateral trade and economic cooperation, as it has been for other Gulf countries. Yemen's geographical location remains strategic, bordering one of the most important international shipping corridors near the Bab al-Mandeb Strait. Now, that, that is another indication of why Yemen is so important to China, the Belt and Road Initiative, the control of the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which, of course, connects um, Yemen to the Horn of Africa where China also has vast economic and trade interests. The World Bank has said post-war reconstruction would require massive foreign assistance in part to restore basic services, and China's history in executing development projects in Yemen make it a natural fit for such work ahead. Post-war reconstruction projects in the energy and infrastructure sectors intersect with China's goals, particularly a revival of the Aden and Mocha container port expansion project. Now, Aden is very much uh, in the crosshairs of uh, Britain, of course, global Britain, having been formerly a British uh, colony um, liberated by uh, a Yemeni uprising. Mike, help me out on that. I think it was in the 1930s. Um, and so therefore, this indicates to me that there is a degree of collaboration between um, China and Britain in Aden and in, in China's expansionism um, into southern Yemen, which would explain the support of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and as I say, partnership with Israel, um, and the um, some discrimination against uh, the existing government inside Yemen itself. But then let's also have a look at bearing in mind China's claim of non-interference. So this is back in March 2017. Saudi Arabia permits China to set up first drone factory in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia has permitted a Chinese firm to set up a factory to manufacture hunter-killer aerial drones for the first time in the Middle East in a boost to China's drone manufacturing industry. If we go on uh, in the article, IHS Jane's Defense Weekly reported on Thursday that the King Abdulaziz City for Science and Technology had signed a partnership agreement on March the 16th with China Aerospace, sorry, Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, which makes China's CH4 unmanned aerial vehicle UAV a model with similar capabilities to the American Air Force's MQ-1 Predator. So. China, despite its non-interference policy, has been supplying um, drones to the Saudi coalition and to the UAE. Um, an article in Foreign Policy, which I 
think was in 2017 or 18, how the UAE's Chinese-made drone is changing the war in Yemen. Let's have a look at this assassination. Salah al-Samad, the president of the Houthi Supreme Political Council, was killed in the drone strike, delivering the death blow to an already stagnant Yemeni peace process. Samad was regarded as a conciliatory figure within the Houthi movement. And of course, the idea of the Houthi movement is very much a Western media concept. The Ansrullah movement includes not only the Houthis, but a large section of uh, the Yemeni population that were against the Saudi-imposed and supported Mansour Hadi regime, um, known for its corruption and authoritarian um, crackdowns on, on any dissent. Um, Samad was regarded as a conciliatory figure within the Houthi rebellion right. and had sought to reach a negotiated settlement to Yemen civil war. So it's interesting that a Chinese um, drone used by the UAE was, was effectively used to assassinate someone that was working towards peaceful resolution. Then let's have a look again in 2017, China's role in the Yemen crisis. China's interest in preserving stability is leading it back to the Saudi-aligned Hadi government. So as I said, China is effectively supporting the illegitimate, legally considered illegitimate Mansour Hadi government that is supported by the Saudi coalition and the West. Um, and here again, the Chinese government's decision to align with Hadi's pro-Saudi forces can be explained by Beijing's endorsement of Hadi's desire to reunite Yemen under stable authoritarian leadership. That is their interpretation. China's indirect support for Hadi also underscores Beijing's commitment to strengthening its burgeoning security partnership with Saudi Arabia. This partnership will allow China to more effectively balance between Tehran and Riyadh, furthering Beijing's quest for an enhanced diplomatic role in the Middle East. More recently, um, as I put out on Twitter on October the 2nd, um, Yemen and China escalation as Chinese tanker docks to steal 2 million barrels of Yemeni oil. Um, China has aligned itself with illegitimate Saudi puppet Mansour Hadi, even supplying drones to the Saudi coalition. Um, and the article itself from uh, Al Masira, uh, Yemeni media that has been blocked on most Western platforms. Um, source at the Ministry of Oil and Minerals revealed that a giant oil tanker coming from China on its way to the Dabar port in Hadramut to loot large quantities of Yemeni crude oil. Um, the source said in a statement to Al Masira, the tanker heading to the port is expected to loot approximately 2 million barrels of crude oil. Um, it's also stressed regularly in these reports in Yemeni media of uh, Chinese looting um, that have been ongoing since 2015. The leader of the revolution, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, had warned during his speech in September the 21st uh, revolution against the continuation to plunder the national wealth mentioning foreign companies that colluded with the aggression, the aggression being Saudi Arabia. It's also very important to stress that the, the revenue that is being stolen effectively from the existing Yemeni government is uh, disabling their ability to, to, to pay wages um, to uh, the Yemeni people. Yeah. Um, Hussein al-Bukhaiti uh, put out a tweet at the same time, breaking news and official warning from the Yemeni army, army and government 
to the captain of the Moran Canopus oil tanker, which is in Daba Port, Hadramut, coming from China. You must leave immediately, otherwise you will be targeted, targeted directly. Uh, this is quite a serious escalation that has sort of passed under the radar um, this month. So previous reports, just to reiterate what's going on, China loots Yemeni's oil in a unique way, again showing the, the yellow circle um, where the Chinese tankers are coming in to dock, which is under the control of elements like Al-Qaeda under the control of the UAE, the British and uh, Saudi Arabia. On this account, the Chinese have so far looted about 5 million barrels of Yemeni oil through the mediation of the Saudis and the UAE and handed over the money at a low price. So they're paying below market price for the oil to the resigned and illegal Yemeni government. According to the Yemeni Rescue Government or the National Salvation Government Oil Ministry, this amount of money is enough to pay the salaries of all Yemeni employees for more than two months. China's support for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the Yemeni war has not been limited to oil purchases. And they talk again about the CH4 um, drones that have been sold to the Saudi and UAE coalition. Again, aggression coalition plunders over 14 billion in Yemeni crude oil revenues. This was in July this year. The value of the Yemeni crude oil revenues looted by the Saudi-led aggression coalition during the period 2016 to 2022 amounted to more than 14.4 billion. Um, and again, they, they run through the various names of the Chinese tankers that have been docking and stealing the oil, as we said, at, at below market prices. And finally, just to um, perhaps highlight a degree of hypocrisy from China, um, whereas it is quite happy to sell um, drone and drone technology and to uh, effectively establish a drone factory uh, on Saudi territory, um, it grounds Russia and Ukraine sales of drones. So in Ukraine, it stopped um, the supply of drones allegedly to Ukraine and to Russia on the basis um, that it didn't want to be involved in sanctions, one, and it didn't want to be seen to be um, furthering um, any conflict there. Okay, thank you for that. And, uh, Patrick, sticking with Saudi Arabia then, uh, we've got from 21st Century Wire, Biden threatens Saudis for not pumping more oil ahead of the US uh, midterm election. So we're into energy here. We're, we're into energy, but we're also into uh, geopolitics in the Middle East. So this is pretty incredible. Uh, the US kind of hinting that there might be sanctions uh, against Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're talking on things like arms sales uh, and that sort of defense in the defense sector um, for starters. And so what this is an incredible story. So you know, Biden's throwing a tantrum. You have to remember a couple of months ago, he went to the to the Middle East, went to the kingdom uh, to sort of beg, beg for uh, support from the uh, regime there uh, that will they help him um, on on oil production. Uh, he needed to desperately lower the price at the pump um, in the United States. And so after the OPEC plus one meeting uh, just this week, uh, they basically rebuffed him. And so now he, they're threatening sanctions. So the whole U.S.-Saudi uh, relationship um, seems to be in a weird place. And this isn't a good thing for Washington or for you know the people that like to have certain levers of control um, in the Middle East, certain cooperations, uh, certain partnerships. Um, this is a bit of a problem. And so, of course, 
Saudi Arabia is free to do some dating uh, with other uh, geopolitical rivals, such as China, which uh, uh, Vanessa has pointed out there um, as an example. Um, so because of domestic politics, and here's the important takeaway, this, uh, the Biden administration is so harebrained uh, over the last year with all of these different things that they're trying to manage that are complete disasters, that domestic politics in the United States um, is actually causing the U.S. geopolitical footprint um, to come apart. And so this is what's happened. And then New York Times, everybody's weighing in now, uh, talking, you know, the various accusations going backwards and forwards. The Jamal Khashoggi um, issue is also thrown in there, especially because of comments Biden made um, at the time, which seemed uh, convenient politically, or at least, uh, you know, a couple of years ago as he was campaigning and after in his first term of office, kind of cold sort of accusations uh, towards Saudi Arabia because of that issue. It's a big, quote, human rights issue. So he was kind of pandering to the, uh, the squad, if you will, in a certain uh, aspect of the Democratic electorate there. But th now the Washington Post um, and these people are just uh, the, the pro-Biden media, the pro-Democrat media, they're, they're now sort of hedging, they're, they're backing off saying, this is an incredible headline. The Saudi-U.S. relationship was always a marriage of convenience. Well, I'll, I'll sort of agree with that in principle, Actually, absolutely. But it shows you they're, they're basically binning their relationship because, again, because of domestic politics. Biden wanted to use his office, use the, the power of his position um, in the run-up to the midterm elections to try to get a reduction of, the, of gasoline prices at the pump um, by by leaning on uh, Arab countries, by leaning on OPEC. So you have to remember when Trump was impeached the second time over the uh, alleged uh, problem with the Zelensky, holding up the Zelensky arms shipment, um, they, the main accusation in that impeachment was that Trump was abusing his power as president, abusing his office for a personal political gain. And so this is exactly what the Biden administration, what Joe Biden's attempting to do here. So again, if, by the, the metric of democratic metric of impeachment, this would be an impeachable offense. So this is an incredible state of affairs. And, you know, at a time when the U.S. can ill afford uh, to lose these partnerships, if they lose Saudi Arabia, who's going to uh, reliably back the extremists like al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, ISIS? You know, a, a lot of the backing and protection and facilitating uh, arguably has come from Saudi Arabia over the years uh, for these extremist groups. And they're doing so on behalf of the United States, on behalf of U.S. Uh, intelligence. Um, so if they don't have that sort of perfect partnership with Saudi, now they've got a problem. They have a, a, a potentially uh, a free agent um, in the Middle East. And so they're free to go and strike relationships now with with Russia, with China, and doing other things, basically, that might not be in Washington's interest. So that means you're going to see a, a potential shakeup um, on a number of different levels. And who knows, maybe detente with Syria, with Saudi Arabia, their relationship might improve. Tur there might be a tighter relationship with Turkey, for instance, Iraq, and so forth. And God forbid, maybe Iran one day. So it'll be interesting to see um, what happens here as a result of this. But again, domestic politics are, are basically causing the U.S. 
empire internationally um, to sort of come apart at the seams. Um, okay, thanks for that, Patrick. Now, just before we uh, end on, uh, well, before we move on to uh, UK energy, uh, it's just been announced, by the way, and uh, since you have a, 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 had a some kind of communicative relationship with him, uh, that uh, Jeremy Hunt has been appointed the new chancellor. So, Debbie, you must be highly impressed with that appointment. Oh, do you know what? I'm 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 sitting here. My brain is spinning, and I'm thinking we need to, we need to bring out that piece of video that where I caught him on Zoom and challenged him about the serious adverse reactions, and just listening to Vanessa's um, amazingly brilliant report. <laughs> I'm thinking World Bank, China economy, and here we've got Jeremy Hunt who can't even remember that he's married to someone from China because he mistakenly said that she came from Japan. So we've got another collaboration going on, haven't we? And well, I'm, are we doomed? It seems as though we're doomed. Well, perhaps. Okay, well, uh, Patrick, are we doomed? Because, uh, well, if we look at this, the, the question you're asking is, uh, is this the blind leading the blind? Well, you've heard of the blind leading the blind, but I think this is a case of, it looks like the bland uh, leading the blind. The Spectator uh, came out with a, a pretty scathing uh, op-ed here by Lloyd Evans. Um, some interesting writing, of course, in The Spectator right now with what's going on in the uh, uh, Tory party and the leadership here. So so basically, he's saying initially, uh, quoting Truss, uh, what our budget has delivered is security for families uh, for the next two winters. Uh, and he goes on to basically uh, Lamb Baster saying, you know, uh, beneath the mumsy twinkle and the kindly half smile, the blonde hairstyle tilted to one side, there lies a certain steel. Or is it just obliviousness? She seems semi detached from her own feelings, which can be helpful to her and frustrating to her opponents. It's hard to wound a foe who registers no pain. And I think the last thing we need is a general election, says Liz Truss. Well, there were sharp intakes of breath. Did she actually say that? A prime minister without a mandate confesses that she has no intention of seeking one. This is worse than a blunder. It was surrender. But guess what? Liz didn't care, says Lloyd Evans at The Spectator. So this again, this comes back to the economy. It comes back to energy. And this was the government's uh, recent piece of legislation here. The government introduces new energy prices bill to ensure Vital support gets to British consumers this winter. So is this really uh, anything to do with energy policy here? Are they hoping to do anything with actual energy policy here? That's the big question. And the answer is nothing with policy. Uh, in the, they're, they're back here to basically reinforcing uh, what looks like the Green New Deal and uh, the sort of net zero uh, carbon uh, UN sustainable development goals, et cetera low carbon electricity generation from renewables and nuclear will be key to securing more low cost homegrown energy. And we are supporting continued investment in this sector, including through the growth plan. So th there's a lot of this type of language um, in this uh, post on, on their website here. And there's nothing really to do with the structural problems that caused this uh, crisis to begin with in the first place, nor reversing any of the policies that have clearly driven uh, the economy, the UK, the energy markets in 
to this position. So instead of rolling back the ridiculous green policies, they're doubling down on them as well. So he, this is from Jake, Jacob Rees-Mogg directly, businesses, and this is in the, uh, in the bill language here on their website, businesses and consumers across the UK should pay a fair price for their energy with prices spiraling as a result of Putin's abhorrent invasion of Ukraine. The government is taking swift and decisive action. So what are they doing to take swift and decisive action? Well, we've been working with the low carbon generators to find solutions that will ensure consumers are not paying significantly more for electricity generated from renewables and nuclear. Is this, this is the extent of the, 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 the sort of the brainchild of the Tory government on tackling the energy crisis. There's nothing here. So they think that they can, can, the government can intervene in the market and somehow transform anything. They're, so they're not making any promises here. The only thing here is basically a uh, printing money and handing out vouchers to people. I mean, this, that, that's the extent of this legislation, which is pretty incredible. And it gets even better. And they say we are protecting the people holding down inflation by printing billions and billions of pounds more at a time when we're already in a hyperinflationary uh, cycle as a result of printing more money. So there's still, like Biden's Inflation Reduction Act in America, you have this disconnect. Governments are totally disconnected from basic economic theory. And they're pushing this as, as some sort of... Uh, a rescue plan. Uh, so we're holding down inflation, preventing Putin's energy price hike. There it is again. So there's tons of references to Russia. So this bill is Russia, Russia, Russia in the in the text of it. It shows you that they're totally scapegoating and externalizing the whole thing. So uh, Putin's price hike from causing long-term harm to our economy and supporting businesses, again, with with payments and vouchers, so, I mean, talk about a recipe for disaster. So we're stuck on stupid. Still, after months, we saw this coming a year ago, over a year ago. The government's still stuck on stupid. So it's kind of ridiculous. So what are the power companies? What are the retail energy companies saying here? Well, here's EDF. If you're an EDF customer, you just got this in your inbox or in your post box just in the last week and smart ways to control your energy usage. So this is what they're offering up at the, at the power companies here. Everyone's feeling the squeeze right now. We're pleased that the government is taking action to tackle energy bills through the government's energy bill support scheme and the government's energy price guarantee at EDF. We want to help, out, help you out this winter, so we're giving you all the tech, the technology, this is a key word, that you need to understand your usage down to pounds and pence. Take control with a smart meter, and you can save up to 70 pounds, a whopping 70 pounds, off your energy bills with our new free energy hub. Not only that, if you book a smart meter upgrade or register your interest, um, if there aren't any suitable appointments, you'll get automatically entered into our super saver lottery draw, apparently, to win 2,500 pounds in cash. Uh, the same as a year's worth of free energy. Wow. This is what EDF, this is the biggest power company in the UK. It's the French state-owned, whole, uh, wholly state-owned power company, which is the UK's biggest retail energy provider to the consumer. And this is what they're offering. 
they're offering sweepstakes, Mike. So yeah. this is amazing. So I, I honestly, and so the stupid gets, uh, doesn't end there. The, the U.S. and its allies are trying to establish a price cap for Russian oil. They're trying to cap it at the $60 range to prevent Putin from profiting. Uh, they don't want to fund his war machine. So the government's going to intervene in this market uh, to create a price cap. And the Russians are saying this is going to be a total disaster uh, for the energy markets. And what's it going to do? It's probably likely um, going to drive prices up um, in the long term as they're screwing with supplies um, and they're screwing with the markets. So it's not going to make any difference regarding Russia, like many of the sanctions. But what's going to do is distort the markets, is sending governments trying to create signals or, or force signals into the market. And it's going to mess around with supply and demand. So we're not going to be able to, it's going to become more chaotic, in other words. But it's not going to hurt Russia to the least. And by the way, um, they're going to make up their volume or any any price differentials. Uh, they're going to make those up uh, with other markets and other long-term contracts. They, 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 Russia's laughing because they don't, they're ignoring this completely. They can negotiate their own prices um, if they want to. And they are doing that with a number of countries including India, and also trading in other currencies as well. So this is all theater. This is all theater. What you're seeing on the UK response to the energy crisis in the US with these price caps, this is all political theater. And it's it's designed to gaslight the population, again, to keep scapegoating Putin and scapegoating Putin's war in Ukraine and ignoring the uh, policies that have been enacted by uh, the US, by Britain, by European, by the EU uh, countries, and uh, and also ignore the structural problems with this out of control middleman, this uh, free floating wholesale energy market. That's that's a basically uh, one of the worst legacies of the Enron era, yeah. and this has caused uh, mad speculation. Plus the green energy policies; these are the three main components, totally ignored, not talked about. Instead, we're, we're handing out vouchers and printing up more money for the crisis. And you know where that's going to end. It's not going to end. Well, it's just well, going to keep going. Uh, absolutely, Patrick. And look, I just want to finish this little segment with this because th this is quite incredible. Uh, uh, rising supply chain costs threaten European solar and battery progress. So basically, uh, the, uh, the green energy uh, manufacturers can't generate enough energy for them to manufacture more green energy. Patrick, so uh, as many as in many uh, energy intensive sectors of the economy, the high cost of power is forcing some manufacturers to temporarily close or abandon production facilities with analysts warning the bloc's plans to reduce the reliance on imported fuels could be derailed unless these costs come down. So they can't build their solar panels and they can't build their their, their windmills because they can't get the, because the cost of energy is too much. And before I just get you to comment on this, uh, I'll just point out uh, British Volt, which is supposed to be driving the uh, British uh, lead in, in battery manufacturing uh, and they're supposed to be building a new plant. Well, unfortunately, their new gigafactory, as they're calling it, has now been delayed till mid-2025, again, because of the cost of energy. So, uh, you know, the, the whole Green New Deal uh, energy policy is collapsing around us um, because of the cost of energy. And of course, the cost of energy is as a direct result of sanctions. Yeah, and it's, it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. You see what the British government is attempting to do, this kind of uh, intellectual exercise of bifurcating the energy market, saying, oh, we've got natural gas over here, 
you know, that's a fossil fuel uh, that's being driven up by Putin's war in Ukraine. But over here, we have the green energy. This is, you know, the nuclear, the clean energy, or we have solar and wind. Um, and so they're they're kind of doing this kind of unofficial windfall tax, as, as it were. They're saying, oh, you know, we're going to promote these cheaper, greener energy. So this is basically a gimmick um, to just sort of continue down the Great Reset road. So this is a conservative government. This is a Tory government that's basically pushing the, the Great Reset right down the throats of the British people. So they claim to be conservative. They claim to be for all these various different things. And they're, they're completely playing into this uh, uh, Green New Deal narrative. And uh, you might as well have the wokest uh, government uh, doing it. And, the, and in many ways, they are the wokest government of the day. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's kind of a joke. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, look, uh, we've just got two minutes left, Patrick, but I want to, we'll talk about this more on, uh, on Extra, but I want, I want to get your thoughts on the Alex Jones uh, situation. So he's obviously $965 million uh, finding against him by the court uh, over the Sandy Hook thing. That's close to a billion dollars. Uh, and my question to you was, what is the point of uh, creating a, a, an award against a, a somebody of that kind of scale when clearly there is no prospect of ever collecting on it? No, it's designed to, uh, a, a, if it worked, it would be designed to bankrupt Alex Jones um, for the rest of his life. Uh, and, you know, the, the plan is to somehow they think they can garnish his uh, wages. So they have to identify all of his different business interests, somehow be able to tap um, payments to him uh, when they arrive. So th th this case isn't over. A, they're going to appeal. I mean, this is the biggest, this is biggest defamation award by far. It's, it's probably um, by orders of magnitude four times more than the biggest uh, case in U.S. history. I would say it's probably something around 250 million. But we're talking corporate defamation. You know, we have deep pockets and assets. Alex Jones is is not that big of an operation. You know, he's a millionaire. But, you know, a million a millionaire doesn't go that far when you got a bill, a billion dollar judgment. This is basically a chilling. This is designed to create a chilling effect against people, uh, free speech. His legal team is making the First Amendment argument. And so it's, it's just completely over the top. So this is the weaponization of the justice system. And most people look at this and want to join the mob on this. And a lot of people say, yeah, we need to get. Alex Jones needs to be held accountable and all the rest of it. But what they're doing is they're opening the floodgates here uh, for more weaponization of the justice system, where this will be the norm, is that if somebody's offended or has mental anguish, which is the case here, nobody died as a result of Alex Jones's comments on Sandy Hook. Uh, they say it's mental anguish. But this is the same mainstream press, the same establishment that characterizes him as a crank, a conspiracy theorist, a tinfoil hat wearer for the last two decades. And at the same time, they're saying, but everything he says is so harmful for the victims of Sandy Hook. So you can't have it both ways. If Alex Jones is a conspiracy nut, why would anyone care what he says about this or any other event? So what, what this is, is an attack on free speech itself, on independent media. And, you know, I would have my differences absolutely with Alex Jones on so many different things. And many things that he would say, I don't care for, but I will defend him 
uh, or anyone else on this issue because you have to be able to separate the media character of the a person is or persona or what the media makes them out to be and the constitutional uh, principles that are at stake uh, with a case like this. You have to separate those two things. Even if I, that's the whole point of having free speech or freedoms like this in advanced Western countries is so that it's the speech you don't like that you need to protect. It's not the speech that you agree with. And this is why we have these rights in place for this very reason. And this is a total abuse of this right now. And imagine this could happen to anyone. Kanye West just had his Chase uh, bank accounts uh, closed or Chase notified him yesterday that his account, and he's he's a big customer because of uh, alleged anti-Semitic comments that he made or a tweet on Twitter. Okay, so this is where we're going now. You saw the PayPal case, not just the Toby Young case, but I wish we would have talked more about the PayPal case, but uh, reserving the rights to cancel anybody if they're guilty of, quote, disinformation, take their money, freeze their account or whatever, disinformation, who defines disinformation? So this is where we're heading now. Yeah. And people need to pay attention. It's not just about Alex Jones. This is a, there's a much bigger issue at stake here. You need to look past the character of Alex Jones and see what the real issue is here, because it's coming for everyone. Yes, thank you for that, Patrick. Okay, we will talk a bit more about this uh, in a few minutes uh, on Extra if you're on the main UK column live stream, but we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you to everybody for joining us. Uh, see you in a few minutes if you're on the main UK column live stream, but otherwise, hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Bye-bye.